You're listening to WALT. Homegrown. Homemade radio. One of my favorite scenes in the HBO series Six Feet Under comes about halfway through season two. If you've never seen Six Feet Under, the series opens with the patriarch of the Fisher family, Nathaniel Fisher, dying in a car accident. And the show primarily tells the story of Nathaniel's children discovering that their father was a very different person than the one they knew, or thought they knew, when he was alive. So, in this one scene that I love, Nathaniel's daughter, Claire, goes to visit her aunt, Sarah. Sarah is this total free spirit, a visual artist and a yogi and a world traveler. Sarah is the sister of Claire's mom, Ruth. And Ruth is basically the opposite of all those things, a homebody who spends a lot of the series cleaning the kitchen and scolding her kids when they curse. Claire is 18, and she's never spent much time with Sarah, so she's really excited when Sarah invites her to spend the weekend at her house. When Claire arrives at Sarah's house, she's greeted not only by Sarah, but by a group of Sarah's hippie friends who didn't even know that Sarah had a niece. And as soon as they find out who Claire is— they start telling Claire stories about her father, Nathaniel. Hell of a guy, your dad. <laughs> so funny. Yeah. Oh, fucking wicked. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I can still see him sitting there at this counter, hunched over his little rolling machine. He used a rolling machine. <laughs> as the nervous laughter subsides, we watch as Claire realizes there was a whole side of her father's life that he never shared with her, rolling joints and cracking jokes with a bunch of mystics and weirdos in the San Fernando Valley. Did he think she wouldn't be able to handle it? Was he trying to protect her from something? As the camera lingers on Claire's face, we watch her reckon with the reality that she'll never really know. This week on our show, we bring you two stories about parents who make a different choice. Parents with parts of themselves that they've kept hidden from their children for decades. But then, when they realize the illusion is doing more harm than good, they decide to lift the veil. And for this week's storytellers, Jim and Gastor, that moment changes everything. She wanted me to understand that you have to fight in life. Especially if you want to be good at something. My dad basically gave these two gangsters carte blanche, you know, like, yeah, scare this little kid. Who cares? He could deal with it. (laughs) You know, (laughs) it's not really the energy I wanted to have going into turning six. From WALTFM and PRX, you're listening to Family Ghosts. I'm Sam Dingman. After the break, the baton is passed and the truth is unmasked. Stay tuned. Our first story this week comes from Jim O'Grady, who told it at a small, living-room-style storytelling series that I hosted once upon a time. Here's Jim. I grab the baton from my teammate so I can run the one-mile anchor leg of the distance medley relay. And when I look up, five yards ahead of me is Vince Mutarelli. This race is over. I could have a 50-yard lead on Vince Mutarelli, and he would track me down, and he would pass me. 
because he is the best high school distance runner in the northeastern United States. Everyone in the stands around the track that day, they know that Vince Mutarelli cannot be beaten. Except one guy thinks maybe he can. And it's the one guy who should know better. It's the guy who's five yards behind him. <laughs> and it's weird because I'm not even the best miler on my, my team. That's a guy named Tom Novak who's injured. So I've known for about a month that I'd be running this anchor leg against Vince Mutarelli. And it has turned me from like good but lazy runner guy into like sports movie montage guy. <laughs> You know, before I had just relied on, like, my basic genetics, skinny, speedy, elastic lungs, also my Catholicism, which has taught me to savor a certain amount of suffering. <laughs> and instead, I, I just sort of, I skip practice, but for the last month, I've gone to every practice, and I've thrown in extra runs at night, and you imagine, like, a 80s throbbing music and me in slow motion, I've changed. The question is, why? Why did I do that? Because Vince Mutarelli is from the Bronx, where the badasses live. I am from Westchester County, <laughs> where the men wear golf slacks and the little dogs wear capes. <laughs> and this also has raised in my mind the question of heritability. Could it be that you're born with a trait that you never get to use because you don't encounter an environment to trigger it? In other words, is it the Bronx that makes the Bronx guys like Vince Mutarelli tough? Or is it some combination of the toughness genes they get from their Bronx parents in combination with the very opportunistic environment of their shitty, shitty neighborhoods that hones them and tests them and makes them ruthless? Is it nature? Is it nurture? I need to know. Because uh, about six weeks before, my mom did an unusual thing. She actually went to one of my track meets, and I had had an off day, and I finished mid-pack, and as she was driving me home, she turned to me and she said, I thought you were good. Right? And, and that hurt. But I saw that as soon as she said it, she regretted it. And then she said, okay, change in plan. I'm going to show you where I grew up. Where my mom grew up was a neighborhood called Highbridge. So Highbridge is a neighborhood in the Bronx on a hill overlooking Yankee Stadium and the Harlem River. So she's taking me there, and I have this like, feeling as, as we're going that she wants me to understand that she had to fight to get out of this neighborhood. And it will, she had to fight not only to leave this place, but sort of the psychology of, of how she grew up. She grew up poor and working class. And she wanted me to understand that you have to fight in life especially if you want to be good at something. And my mom has these beautiful memories of growing up there, and on the 4th of July, all the kids would go up to the roof of her apartment building, and her dad, who was a cop, would 
get out these bottle rockets and shoot them into the night sky. And in winter, she and her friends on a snowy night would hop on sleds and they'd go all the way down the hill to the river. Because this was before, when my mom was growing up, before the expressways came and just mutilated this neighborhood. So we go around the corner and we go up to the address where her apartment building, which is the gathering place of all her childhood memories. And we pull to the curb and we look and it's gone. There's bricks on the ground in an empty lot. And this is the only time I ever saw my mother cry. My mom and dad had this idea, she was a teacher, he was a government worker, that the best thing they could do for me and my brothers is just give us a carefree childhood, unlike theirs. They wanted us to have a carefree childhood. We grew up in a town called Crestwood. Norman Rockwell literally painted a picture of Crestwood train station. (laughs) And my parents got a little cheap print of it and put it into this frame, which was sort of painted gold, and they put it over the mantle, so on Sunday nights, the three boys would sit on the couch, eating ice cream, looking at Norman Rockwell, while the wonderful world of Disney played on television. (laughs) It was so American, like, it would make you puke. So my childhood was as wholesome as a pasteurized glass of milk, and about as interesting. Because here I am, I'm 17 years old, I'm about to go off to college, and I don't know how to operate a stick shift or a checking account. (laughs) Now, these things can be learned, and maybe one day I will learn them. (laughs) But what is harder to learn when you have a sheltered, Upbringing, like I had, what's harder to learn is resilience. So I pay very close attention to my mother, and I watch how she takes less than a minute to cry. And then she starts the car, drives us home, and makes dinner for our family. And later that night, she does something even harder. She comes into my bedroom, to the bedroom I share with my brothers, sits on the bed next to me, and she apologizes to me. So my strategy for beating Vince Mutarelli is very simple. Stay close for three laps, get on his shoulder, stick with him through the fourth lap, and then just fight him down the home stretch. And when you get to the last lap in a race, the official rings a bell. So when Vince Mutarelli and I get to the bell lap, I am on his shoulder. This is shocking in and of itself. But everyone in the stands, there's like 300 people, they know he's toying with me. His nickname is La Machine. Because he runs like a fucking cyborg and he never gets tired. They know he could leave me at any time. But he doesn't. I stay with him through the curve and we hit the backstretch, and now people are starting to stand up. They're starting to like bang the railings. They're starting to hoot and howl. And I get up next to Vince Mutarelli, and we are shoulder to shoulder, and I'll never forget this. He shoots me a look like, who the fuck are you? 
and then he takes off to a five-yard lead. And I'm like, that's it? After all my work, he just leaves me behind. That's it. And then I see it. His stride chops a little bit. He's tired. So I come back up to him, and we go through the back turn together. And now we hit the home stretch neck and neck. And now people in the stands, they're all on their feet, and they're screaming. They're going crazy. I will myself into the lead, and I focus on the finish. And then he comes up next to me and gets ahead again. And somehow I pull up even next to him, and he looks at me again like, no, really, who the fuck are you? (laughs) We're 10 feet from the line, 5 feet. We lean for the tape. I win. (laughs) Don't get too excited. Three weeks later, at a huge meet, the pain relays, Mitarelli and I hook up again, and he buries me. I don't even come close. But on this day, this one day, I win. Why? I think it has something to do with something I inherited from my mom. It's, the, it's really the thing I value most. I think I got a fraction of her toughness, of her high bridge, of her Bronx. Thanks. Family Ghosts will continue in a moment. Ghost Family, if you enjoyed Jim's story, it may interest you to know that you can hear more excerpts from the storytelling series where he performed it in our Patreon feed. We call our Patreon subscribers the Kindred Spirits, and Family Ghosts wouldn't be possible without their support. For just $5 a month, Kindred Spirits hear all of our episodes ad-free, and they get exclusive bonus content you can't hear anywhere else. This week, they're hearing another story recorded at Dingmantics Live, which is what I called that living room-style storytelling series where Jim performed. This bonus story is about a young man who takes a fateful trip to an abandoned cabin and his encounter with some family ghosts he wasn't expecting to find. I know it may seem strange for me to ask for your financial support when you hear ads during the breaks of our show, but the truth is that while I am grateful for those sponsorships, they don't come close to covering the costs of doing this show at the level of quality that you expect. So if you have the means, please consider joining the Kindred Spirits today at patreon.com slash familyghosts. This next story comes from Gastor Almonte. You may recall a bonus episode of this show, where Gastor told a story about some crime-fighting chickens. And this story is also about crime-fighting, 
sort of. Hey, growing up in East New York, you tend to develop a bit of an edge to you, you know? Like, I remember a few years back on Thanksgiving at my parents' house, my uncle walked over to me. He was like, yo, Gastor, uh, you know your father once uh, stabbed somebody over Snapple? <laughs> and and then he just walked away like that's how you end conversation I thought about that a lot I just I, I guess I've come to learn that my father just didn't want me to know that side of him and that side of reality uh, and he came up with a plan you know so he bought a house with his sister and it was next door to one of his other sisters so I'd be able to be kind of insulated. You know, I'd have family upstairs. I'd have family next door. And I had my parents. And together, they could kind of keep me from the hoodlums in the area, you know, protect me. The problem was, is that my cousins that now lived upstairs and next door, uh, they were the hoodlums in the area, <laughs> you know. <laughs> my cousin uh, Carlos was next door. I mean, Gito upstairs. Uh, they kind of like, you know, unofficially ran the block and I gotta tell you, man, they were cool as shit, you know, <laughs> like everything you aspire to be as a kid, they were as teenagers, you know, just, they don't tell you this, you know, you don't, they don't have websites for like, you know, drug dealer employments, but if they did, one of the benefits has to be that they're pro truancy, you know, they kind of make their own schedules, like. Despite being teenagers, they didn't really go to school as often as I was going to school. You know, they had a level of freedom that I appreciated, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Seeing that was just, I wanted to take part in it. I wanted to be, you know, where they were. But, you know, Carlos and Miguito, they, uh... They developed this habit of just scaring the fuck out of me all the time. <laughs> you know, uh, they had this uh, pale white face mask with really long green hair. It looked like the Joker, you know. And uh, every time I went outside to kind of play and chill, they would just hop out from behind walls and, you know, scream in my face. I'd run inside crying. My mom would hug me. My dad would come in and be like, what's going on? I'd tell him the situation. He'd run outside. He'd yell at them. And they'd stop for a few weeks. We had a system of sorts, you know. <laughs> and this went on for most of the first year I lived there. But, you know, my birthday was coming up. And the problem is my birthday was the same week as Halloween. And, you know, I remember telling my dad the situation. And he was... He was like, listen, you know, as much as, you know, I check your your cousins, you know, they're still relatively young. They're still kids. They're allowed to wear masks on Halloween. So I'm not really going to yell at them this week if they do some. And, you know, that sucked because on the week when I'm supposed to be feeling at my best, at my highest, my, it's my day. My dad basically gave these two gangsters carte blanche, you know, like, yeah, scare this little kid. Who cares? He could deal with it. <laughs> you know <laughs> it's not really the energy i wanted to have going into turning six despite that you know i still woke up on a good mood on my birthday my mom made pancakes incredible word on the street is i was doing my thing in school my two plus two game 
unmatched. It was legendary. It felt great, you know. I walked out the door and Minguito uh, was standing by the door of the building as I walked out the apartment door and he's like, hey man, happy birthday, little man. And like, all of my senses told me this is too nice. You know, <laughs> I don't know what's going on, but I expect wrong to happen from here. But I appreciated it regardless. You know, I was like, thank you, Minguito. I don't know what brought this about you, but you know, I like this change of character. And like, as I'm fully committing to this moment of love, Carlos jumps out from behind the bench and he's like, boom, right in my face. And I'm like, oh, sh and I run inside crying. I hear the door slowing and closing in the background and they're laughing to each other. They're like, happy birthday, motherfucker. <laughs> and I, I just get inside and I go straight to my mom and my dad uh, comes in, you know, he was waiting in the car for me. He's like, what happened? And I'm like, yo, Carlos and Miguito, they scared me again. Are you not paying attention? So what's happening out there? You know, you're the dad. This seems to fall under your jurisdiction. And he's like, yo, man up and handle your business. And it, it, it sounds like solid life advice, but he just says that for everything. You know, like I struggled with tying my shoes. And he was like, man up and handle your business. And then he would walk out like, all right, I did my job here. You got, you got it from here, right? <laughs> But uh, this time we took it a little further. He's like, what are you scared of? Because you chill with Miguito and Carlos all the time. What's scaring you now? And I tell him, I'm like, it's the Joker mask, Dad. He's a whole new person when he puts that on. And he's like, all right, fine. The Joker mask, it scares you. Cool. Who is the Joker scared of? And I'm like, Batman, Dad. And he's like, okay, so why don't you be Batman? And I was like, that's a good idea. Genius parenting, you know? So he gives my mom, uh, you know, $20. And uh, after school, she takes me to City Line to buy uh, a Batman costume. Uh, for non-New Yorkers, City Line is the border of Brooklyn and Queens. A uh, beautiful shopping area now. Uh, back then, it was just like a Foot Locker and a ton of 99 cent stores, you know? <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, I, I got this costume for Halloween. I was excited. Uh, a bit different than today. You know, I'm a dad now. I bought my son uh Captain America costume. Uh, cost me $65, which is way too much money to invest uh, for Halloween, I think. So... Uh, because of that, you will notice if you come to my house that my son was Captain America for Valentine's Day, for graduation day. Uh, he wore that. That was now an outfit as far as I was concerned. <laughs> but uh, my Batman outfit was a little different. It was uh, a plastic cape that I'm pretty sure was also included in the Batman Christmas package as a table cover. Um, I had a plastic batman mask that had white lips and a rubber band that went around uh the white lips made me look like albino batman you know it didn't really match my skin tone <laughs> but you know i made it work i felt it made me confident that's what mattered you know so the next day i went out there and i ain't gonna lie they scared me again and i came inside crying and 
before I could even hug her, my mom looked at me and she said, yo, what did your father tell you? Go be Batman. And I was like, oh, you're right. So I went to my room. I took my clothes off, put on the Batman mask, put on the Batman cape. I had a uh, Batman underwear too. I actually took them off and put them back on, but I put them on backwards because you know, the, the cartoons was on the back of the logo or the underwear. I wanted them to see the logo and they would know I mean business. I go back outside and they scream in my face. And this time I'm like, yo, I'm Batman and I ain't scared of you no more. And I struck the Captain Morgan pose waiting. And it was a moment of tension. You know, I, I, I know what was going to happen. And I was a little nervous because I know in cartoons and in movies, whenever there's a lot of silence, some craziness is about to happen. But Carlos and Miguito, they looked at me and they just started laughing, <laughs> you know. <laughs> they started high-fiving each other. This was the coolest shit they'd ever seen. They're like, yo, my little cousin got balls. My little cousin ain't scared of nobody. Brooklyn got their own Batman now. They brought people out from the neighborhood and they was telling everybody I was now officially in the gang. I felt great. By the end of the week, everybody in the neighborhood knew, you know? I was going up in preschool telling everybody all types of snack. You know, I was in, I was, I was in class and I'd be like, hey, yo, listen, if something goes down in the classroom, don't worry about it, I got you covered. I can't explain because I got to take off my clothes, put on my outfit, but just know the situation's under control. Kids would walk by the, the classroom and I would see kids walk by. And I remember this one pair of kids, they walked by and they were like, yo, is that that kid that thinks he Batman? And the other kid corrected him. It was like, nah, that kid is Batman. You know, I was official, co-signed in these streets. Gastor's story continues after the break. This episode is brought to you by Cottonelle. Want a self-care routine that leaves you feeling refreshed? Treat the skin you don't see like the skin you do with Cottonelle toilet paper and flushable wipes. Using toilet paper with clean ripples, remove more at once for a clean that puts a pep in your step. Then to freshen and renew, use the cleansing power of water with flushable wipes. Yes, flushable wipes. They're designed for toilets, tested with plumbers and eco-friendly. Feel confident knowing you've upped your down-there care with a routine that leaves you feeling amazing. Buy now wherever Cottonelle products are sold. And I felt great, you know. Now I had a cover. I wasn't scared of my cousins. And even so, they stopped trying to scare me. They were now embracing me as part of the crew. Uh, the problem, um, as I mentioned before, teenage uh, drug dealers, uh, they have a lot of free time on their hands. The, the scheduling system, it's not nine to five, you know. Uh, this tends to lead to a lot of moments of boredom. And uh, when they were bored, you know, I was now the new thing that they could call upon to entertain them, you know. So they would call me to save the day, quote unquote, as Batman should. So they'd be like, hey, yo, Yo, the pit bulls are loose. Go get Brooklyn Batman. Hey, yo, 
uh, Mrs. Brown, she's acting a little funny again. I think she's been drinking. Go get Brooklyn Batman. Hey, yo, the rival drug dealers are here. They're going to start some issues unless we cut the tension. Go get Brooklyn Batman. And uh, admittedly, uh, unlike uh, the actual Bruce Wayne, I had uh, mixed results. But, you know, I did my best. <laughs> I did what I could in these uh, situations as a six-year-old in his underwear and a mask on. You know, little by little, it just, it just stopped being fun. It was just work, you know. And I, I, I remember just sitting down with my dad. I said, yo, Pop, man, uh, I had to tell you, this this uh, this Brooklyn Batman thing, it's, it's not what I signed up for. It's a lot of work. I need some a little more casual, you know, a little less stressful, like how you got with this parenting thing, you know. Um, <laughs> what? When he's like, well, you're not scared of your cousins anymore. You're not scared of the Joker. You know, you kind of did the main thing you wanted to do, you know, get over your fear. You don't need to be Batman forever. You could, you know, stop being Batman. And that's that's what I did. I decided I wasn't going to be Batman anymore, you know. A few years later, I'm back home, you know, now I'm in, you know, my early 20s and I'm back on that old block I'm visiting my aunts my parents and I no longer live there and and I just want to say what's up and we had like an informal reunion people were coming over um but think you know some things were different uh Carlos uh had gotten locked up and you know we only communicated with him through letters Minguito had uh annoyed a lot of people and uh moved down to North Carolina to kind of avoid some problems uh, I can't really get into all that for legal reasons. <laughs> but uh, for some reason on this trip to my aunts, he was there and he, he was never announced for the exact same reason. Like he didn't want people to know he was coming, uh, but he shows up and I hadn't seen him at this point in probably like, you know, eight years. So it was exciting. Like, you know, I gave him a pound. I was like, yo, Miguito, man, I got to ask you, brother, like, when I was a kid, why did you and Carlos keep scaring the fuck out of me all the time, bro? And he laughs. He's like, yo, my man, that wasn't even the idea. That was your dad. And I was like, what? He's like, yeah, your pops. He pulled us aside one day. And he said, yo, I don't care what you do out in these streets. You and your cousin, Carlos, I really don't care. But one thing y'all not going to do, y'all not going to let my son be a part of it. So he said, whatever you got to do, make sure that you never let my son play with y'all. So we took that to heart. You know, we were like, all right, you know, what can we do to keep this six-year-old from playing with us? Uh, so uh, we saw you were scared of the Joker and, you know, uh, Carlos just started wearing the mask and kept running away so we just did that every time we was going to do something crazy so uh just to be clear um what you're telling me miguito is that my dad told y'all hey listen uh make sure my son doesn't want to hang out with you guys as you do your dangerous job and you guys interpreted that as uh let's traumatize him mentally for the rest of his life <laughs> and uh uh, he basically said, yeah, uh, that was it. 
and I I was blown away, but I couldn't even wait uh, to leave. I I I pulled my dad downstairs. I said, "Yo, pops, is, is this true? You told Carlos and Miguito they could scare me," and he was like, "I mean, that wasn't my plan, but yeah, it worked, right?" <laughs> and uh, I learned a few things, you know. One, uh, it wasn't a Joker mask; they had a Beetlejuice mask. You know, I guess, I guess it looks kind of similar. <laughs> and years later, I actually learned that uh, the same actor was playing uh, both characters in this drama. So I was Michael Keaton fighting Michael Keaton. You know, <laughs> um, but uh, the other thing. I, I learned is this whole time, you know, I, I wanted to be Batman, but my dad is Batman, you know? He didn't care about credit. He didn't care about, you know, notoriety. He just wanted what was best. And, you know, now that we're older, you know, we, we own properties together. We work together. And I realized, you know, he he still runs the whole building. He uh he makes everything happen and he calls me when he needs a specific tool, when he needs counseling and when he wants to talk through a situation and I realize this whole time, you know, I wanted to be Batman. It turns out I'm Alfred, you know, <laughs> but uh, I had to say I feel real blessed. Family Ghosts is hosted, produced, written, edited, and mixed by me, Sam Dingman. Today's stories were told by Jim O'Grady and Gastor Almonte. You can hear more of Jim's brilliant storytelling in the first season of the WNYC Studios podcast, Blind Spot, The Road to 9-11, which he hosted, and which is, in all sincerity, one of my favorite audio documentaries. Gastor also hosts another excellent podcast called The War Report, with fellow comic Shalewa Sharp. I'll put links to both of those other shows in the notes for this episode. Our show art is by Teddy Blanks, and our theme song is by Louis Guerra. Incidental music comes from Blue Dot Sessions. You heard a clip from Six Feet Under at the top of this week's show, and if you want to hear more about that show, check out Fisher Family Ghosts, our first-ever Family Ghosts spinoff. Every week, my partner Adrian and I watch an episode of Six Feet Under, and then talk about the ways the characters, narratives, and themes make us think about our own approach to storytelling and our own families. Check out Fisher Family Ghosts wherever you're listening to this. We'll be back in two weeks with a brand new episode. Thank you for listening, Ghost Family. I'll talk to you then.
from PRX.